I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop podcast. To find out about our upcoming events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events. It's uh, great to see you all here, and isn't it wonderful to have Carrie Brownstein with us? There will be a chance for you to ask questions, but first of all, we're going to talk, and Carrie's going to read a little bit, and that will be for about 45 minutes. This is a wonderful book. It's also a beautifully written book. And um, in one, and, and Carrie skewers many things in it, one of which is a certain kind of England. And so I thought I'd start by quoting her on when, they, when Slater Kinney played all tomorrow's parties at the Camber Sands Pontins. <laughs> um, she said, the American equivalent of this facility would be like staying at a Super 8 motel, still decorated for Easter three months past the holiday, <laughs> and featuring a rain-soaked, outdated McDonald's play area partially closed for construction. <laughs> I think we can all recognize those places. So that gives you an idea not only of, of, of the brilliance of her writing, but the sharpness of her eye. Um, she obviously, she returned more recently in March with a triumphant tour with the reunited Slater Kinney. Um, playing at the Roundhouse else and elsewhere to great acclaim. I wanted to start, Carrie, by asking, you know, after this amazing career in music and then the extraordinary success of the Portlandia series on TV, you decided to write a book. And what was it like writing a book? Uh, it's, it's a terribly isolated experience um, <clears throat> compared to the collaborative endeavors of both Slater Kinney and Portlandia. Um, I'm used to having other people augment and inspire my own ideas, challenge them, um, you know, at all the time. And, um, and just that way of like hoping that what we're going to do is uh, greater than the sum of its parts. And uh, with, with writing, especially something long form, I felt like I was my own worst enemy at every step. Um, and you don't sort of have that kind of built-in uh, cheerleader um, or sidekick that you do in, in a partnership. Um, so yeah, that, that was the most striking to me, is, is that there was sort of nothing magical about it, uh, which I suppose you know as a writer, <laughs> you just have to sit down and sit down and um, tackle the task at hand. and. Um, and that, for me, required uh, a lot of deliberation and intentionality and was very frustrating at times. It's interesting you use the phrase, your own worst enemy, because another remarkable aspect of this book is how relentlessly you pursue yourself and deliver yourself up as the child who was terribly anxious but made uh, performing and demanding attention as a way of expressing anxiety, or, or the young woman who wanted to be in a band and went off somewhat unprepared for a, an audition, um, which, which um, with a band who didn't want you, but later turned up. And yeah. perhaps you'll read a bit from the book about that and tell us a bit about it. Sure, I can set that up. When um, 
In between, I transferred universities when I was 18 years old. And um, in that interim, I auditioned for a Seattle band called Seven Year Bitch. This was, this was in uh, probably 1992. And um, they needed a guitar player. Uh, and I barely played guitar. Uh, they put an ad actually in a local paper, which is very surprising if you can imagine a band that you've heard of, like the National or something, or I don't know. I'm trying to think of, the, I always try to think of the English equivalent. <laughs> uh, let's see, I don't know. Um, basically the putting an ad. Yeah, the National. <laughs> you know who that is. Um, you know, putting an ad, they put an ad in the paper that said, uh, girl guitarist wanted no wanky solos. And I thought, <laughs> well, I can't even play a solo, let alone a wanky one. Uh, so I, I show up at this, um, I'm living in the suburbs, and I drive to the audition, and I'm wearing a really terrible outfit. Um, which she describes in great detail in the book. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, anyhow, so I didn't, I didn't get the part, um, uh, but I continued in the very sort of uh, audacious um, way that I they often do, and with a lot of gumption and moxie, kind of pursuing this person as if, as if she was going to eventually acquiesce and let me into the band. That never happens. Um, so later, uh, I, I she comes to one of the the Slater Kinney shows, and I will. Um, I will read from that part. <clears throat> Her name, uh, by the way, is Elizabeth. She was the bass player in Seven Year Bitch. During the next few months, I occasionally ran into Elizabeth at Seattle shows and music festivals like 1077's Endfest. She was always kind to me, but I had clearly become a pest. Later, when I knew what it felt like to carry the weight of your fans' aspirations, I would remember the way Elizabeth looked at me after I'd sent the letter, a look of pity distrust and weariness. There's a gulf of misunderstanding between musicians and their fans, and often so much desperation that the musician can't possibly assuage, rectify, or heal. You feel helpless and you feel guilty. With Slater Kinney fans, I tried to be generous, but I soon grew uneasy. For a long while, I could share nothing more than the music itself. I think I was too scared to be open with the fans because I knew how bottomless their need could be. How could I possibly help if I was just like them? I was afraid I might not be able to lessen their pain or live up to their ideals. I would be revealed as a fraud, unworthy and insubstantial. The disconnect between who I was on and off stage would be so pronounced as to be jarring. Me so small, so unqualified. In the early years of Slater Kinney, we played at Seattle's Crocodile Cafe. Elizabeth was at the show. By then, Seven Year Bitch had broken up. She came up to me, complimented my guitar playing, and told me she loved the band. Elizabeth didn't recognize me as the girl who had gone over to her house that day or written her an overly earnest tell-all letter. I was relieved that music had done exactly what I had always wanted it to do, which was turn me into someone else. Mm. Yeah. Now, the, the, the hunger you talk about there, the hunger of the fans that cannot be assuaged, Reminds me, of course, of your title and the fact that it's a line from your song, mm -hmm. Modern Girl. Um, and it seems to me to be about the hunger we all feel in adolescence. We don't know what we're hungry for. Mm -hmm. We're just hungry. Is, is that why you chose it? Or? Yeah, I, I think there is a particularly inarticulate hunger, kind of an amorphous, uh, mm. almost insatiable hunger as, as, a, as a teen. Uh, and um, that... And we try to sort of uh, feed ourselves through so many different outlets. Um, and 
it often, sometimes it sates us and, and sometimes it leaves us feeling emptier. And I think that's, um, that's a very pronounced loneliness, I think. I think the worst kind of loneliness is, is to sort of feel that you're around people, but that you're not being seen. And I, I think in, in a figurative way, it's that invisibil- uh, invisibility and that lack of embodiment uh, that we feel as young people. But I think that permeates, uh, you know, us. It's very permeating into into adulthood. And I think yeah. it's something um, striving for that embodiment and, and seeking it through creativity is so much of what of what the book is about. Um, but there is something I think particularly striking about um, the means that one goes to um, to be seen, uh, sometimes uh, at one's own detriment. Um, yeah. And sometimes, actually, I, you know, the sort of paradox of self-effacement in order to be seen. Yes. You know, uh, sort of this act of denial um, in order to be present. And part of the denial being the denial of the possibility of humiliation uh-huh. as well. So it is a real obliteration of the ego. It's uh-huh. not really, um, I mean, it, it, what you're saying, I mean, it strikes me that when you talk about your childhood and all the things you did to grab the floor to get attention, mm-hmm. um, which you you give us very um, honestly, uh, performing, the, the, the need to perform seems to have come before music being the means of performing. Oh, yeah. <laughs> there were many, many times um, that I, I tried to perform, um, whether it was my Duran Duran cover band, <laughs> which uh, was called Lil Dicker. Was that the one that involved the dog? No, 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 that, no that didn't involve the dog. Um, Lil D. Duran Duran was the name of the cover band, and it was L I L apostrophe. And um, <laughs> cover band is is again a generous term because we we weren't playing anything. We weren't playing cover songs, and um, we just designed instruments out of wood. And um, <laughs> um, I was Simon Le Bon, of course. Um, because I think when you're the neighborhood impresario uh, and you're the leader, you get to choose who you're going to be. And um, I insisted, even though everyone else was uh, air guitaring or air keyboard, um, I actually sang over the music. <laughs> um, and so yeah, there was just like a continual uh, and constant uh, mode of performance for me. I think it was the way that I made sense of the chaos that I was starting to feel at home. And also the way I sort of felt most comfortable interacting with people was with sort of this heightened way um, of, of being in a room or in a situation. I think it gave it a structure. There's something about performance. I mean, um, there's a formality to it. There's a beginning and a middle and an end. And I think when um, you're entrenched in that sort of unknowing messiness of, of youth or of sadness, uh, you don't feel the edges. Mm-hmm. And performance uh, had a beginning and then it had a finale. And I was so grateful to know when something would end, uh, especially if I could control it. Uh, so yeah, I really flung myself um, very, very vehemently into situations. Um, mm-hmm. It was also a lot of fun, but I, I felt like I kind of kept people help people hostage a little bit with my desire to, to entertain them. It, it's as if the, it gives you a sort of choreography um, yes. of, of experience, rather. Mm-hmm. Chore- it turns the chaos into a kind of choreography, or, or you can find a, a step, steps to take and a thing mm-hmm. to be. Yeah. Um, it's like, it's and you can name it. The move yeah. marked out on the floor. Yeah. 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 No, I completely understand that. And then you, you talk wonderfully about first going to see bands and how 
when you went to see the B-52s, how you were so pressed up against the barrier that you bruised your ribs. Mm -hmm. And it just made me think about how much you wanted not only to experience this thing, but you wanted it to have an impact, that you wanted you to have an impact on it and it to have an impact on you. Mm-hmm. And was this, was these early trips, because you went to see Madonna and you saw George Michael and you screamed and screamed. Yes. And, and was, was, this, um, was this a moment of recognition more than discovery, as in, this is my thing? Uh, I think more so with George Michael than Madonna, actually. <laughs> um, with Madonna, I mean, that was just pure adoration. I actually, um, I had a lot of pictures of Madonna on my wall, and I remember crying to my mother. Mm-hmm. Well, I asked her, like, will Madonna and I ever be friends? <laughs> and when she said no, I was crestfallen. <laughs> and she was right, because we're still not friends. <laughs> um, with George Michael, I remember uh, the Faith tour. Faith um, was his album in the 80s, and uh, women loved George Michael. We didn't, um, and George Michael loved women at the time, we all thought. And, uh, <laughs> so it was mutual. And um, I remember my friend, I was young, I was 13 or 14, and my friend turned to me and she said, uh, I want to give George Michael a blowjob. And I was like, I don't. Uh, I, and, and that was a moment of recognition of feeling like, you know, I would rather be the object of desire. And I don't even necessarily mean physical, like, lust, but just I want to be the one um, upon who, whom people project imagination and, and longing. And, uh, you know, I don't want to be sort of a passive recipient of, of this person's energy, uh, even though that was also a way of fueling myself. But, but I felt like it was a much more symbiotic relationship. I didn't just feel like a vessel upon which, you know, um, I, someone else was just kind of throwing their creativity and art. Like, I pushed back. And I mm. think um, as, a, as a listener, as an audience member, I pushed back and I kind of willed myself um, through the act of, of watching and observing, um, I willed myself into that very narrative. Um, and I've always been an observer, and I think it's, it's sort of the way that I uh, navigate things. Well, that um, pushing forwards and pushing back is, is very much like the experience of music that you describe, uh, which is that it makes us feel more like ourselves and also that we are escaping ourselves mm-hmm. at the same time. Yeah, it's very kind of a, a weird uh, duality, I think, mm. um, especially playing music. The, the cloak, I guess, of, of volume, uh, particularly in Slater Kinney, where um, there's so much you can obliterate with noise. And I think that we, mm. we really uh, took advantage of and relished um, kind of sitting within a, a sonic landscape that seemed to permeate and expand past the boundary of a, of a given space. I felt like I could disappear in, in that. But at the mm. same time, it was uh, the first moments that I felt most em- embodied. Um, you know, I, uh, there's this essayist uh, in the U.S., Charles D'Ambrosio, and he talks about writing as um, a dream of making the distance go away. And... Uh, I, music was very much that for me, you know, I felt like this divided self and, um, you know, the, the dream world of, of Slater Kinney, what I desired most from performance was to make that distance go away. And, and part of that, that distance was just the distance between my head and my body. And it was, um, I really, 
uh, embraced uh, the physical nature of performing and the way that that gave me a sense of who I was for the first time um, and also a sense of being outside myself. And that combination, I think, is, is very special and, and very uh, awesome, I guess. Yeah, and noise being, there's the noise in the depths of music, the noise that's in the depths of words, and, and the noise that the band made, it means unlike any other, and it does have that centrifugal feeling of, of bits kept trapped with, you know, but, but not quite meeting and, and mm -hmm. expectations kind of being subverted, and mm -hmm. um, which keeps that space closing, but the live, you know, there's mm -hmm. a sense of absolute liveness to, to this feeling that this is giving substance. It's not sort of things are in place now. Because when you talk about the pop you grew up with, you use a phrase, is it the synthed out pop of the 80s? Mm -hmm. And how when you discovered bands like Bikini Kill, that you were discovering music, which you said can be performed, doesn't just need, uh, sorry, isn't just performed, it's played. Mm -hmm. and, and that's about discovering noise as well, isn't it? That, mm -hmm. that there's something about the visceral nature of the making of it and the response to it. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that, I, I guess it's, it has to do with, with the tactile and kind of yeah. understanding uh, process a little bit. And it, it really took, uh, for me, seeing those bands playing and, and having, uh, seeing fingers uh, move upon a, a fretboard or seeing, um, you know, a little bit of spit leave a singer's mouth as, yeah. as they project, uh, seeing glances between two players looking down on the ground and seeing uh, effects pedals, um, you know, the amp settings, like that, it, it's, it's very uh, immersive. And I do think, um, you know, I think some people can sort of revel in, in the invisibility of, of sound, you know, mm -hmm. I mean, when someone's sort of playing something off a, off a laptop or when you are just hearing something, but for me, I, I needed a, a relationship with the doing, you know, yeah. and, and, and the production. And um, I think it's just about demystification and, and realizing that, that I could do that too was, was very important to me. But um, yeah, sound and, and the way that you're talking about uh, how Slater Kinney didn't, uh, me and Korn's guitar in particular, even our voices, uh, they didn't always match up. Um, I think about the same thing with, with discourse and um, yeah. the ways, um, how misunderstanding works and uh, <laughs> in, in the ways that, you know, there are pauses and, um, and miscommunication. Mm. And um, I love that, you know, I love, and I think about, I, we use that a lot in Portlandia too, um, repetition, uh, duration, uh, the way you stay on something when you don't mm. know where else to go. And, um, to me, when people ask about the differences between Slater Kinney and Portlandia, I actually focus so much almost in a, a linguistic way on, mm. on the way that they're very similar. Yeah, that's very interesting. Do you have something to read us about noise? And sure. <laughs> yes, I do. Yes. <laughs> Were you like, chance. get to it, get to it. Here is not at all. <laughs> Something she prepared earlier. Yes, yeah. I prepared earlier when I wrote this. <laughs> um, this is uh, from uh, the era of Call the Doctor, which was in the mid-90s. Um, on the title track, Corin and I each sang a melody on the chorus. She was louder than me, so her vocal was the lead by default. But we never really considered one a background part to the other. It was a conversation we were having. 
She had her perspective and I had mine, or I was emphasizing her point, retelling it even as I was singing along with her. And our guitars did the same thing, augmenting and counteracting each other. We would get to the chorus and intuitively you'd think, this is the time for us all to sing together, that there should be a cohesion, but instead we would split apart. It was almost an anti-chorus. We weren't trying to form a solidarity with anyone but ourselves. Could you sing along to Slater Kinney? Sometimes, but we just as likely shout over you. And good luck trying to sing along with Corin. Trust me, I know, <laughs> it's nearly impossible. As a listener, you have to decide what to follow in the song, which vocal, which guitar. This way of writing and singing was something we tacitly understood. We never discussed it. We never mentioned counter melodies. We didn't want to sing harmonies. Our songs weren't pretty, nor was our style of singing. It sounded scarier to not sing together, rarely allowing the listener to settle into the music. Everything inside the songs was constantly on the verge of breaking apart. Corin's voice, the narrative, the guitars, so few moments provided any respite at all. If we did sing together on the chorus, it was only after a strange, uncomfortable verse. Yet the result was forceful. It sounded like a tightly bound entity, fragments clinging to each other for dear life. If you pulled one thing apart, it wouldn't even sound like a real song. It was a junkyard come to life. It reminds me of this lovely phrase where you say that Slater Kinney's songs would make really horrible background music. Yes. <laughs> Which is a triumph, isn't it? It is yeah. a triumph. Yeah. It will never be played in a, in <laughs> Supermarket. a store. Supermarket. Yes. No, yeah. no shopping store, no shopping uh, malls. Um, I have heard it before, and it's terribly unsettling. I've heard it, um, <laughs> heard it once while getting my, my hair cut. And I actually didn't recognize it. I might have even said in a really like sort of grandmotherly way, like, what is this racket? Uh, um, also dig me out. Uh, John Goodmanson, our producer, panned everything. The guitars, my guitar is way on the left and Corns is way on the right. And I was sitting in a particular part of the salon that I could only hear Corns' guitar part. And I was like, what is this? <laughs> we talk a little bit about the kind of movements that were around when you were forming so riot girl and, and punk and um and again you're you're um you're very clear about how these kind of um incredible uh sort of surges of uh, uh, and coherences of 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 ideology and determination and collectiveness can rigidify mm-hmm. and become uh well you say um you talk about riot girls, a movement that professed inclusiveness seemed to actually be highly exclusive, as alienating and ungraspable as many of the clubs and institutions that drove us to the fringes in the first place. One set of rules had simply been replaced by new ones, and they were just as difficult to follow. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think that there, there are reasons that um, sort of early forms, early movements, uh, early, I guess, incarnations of movements are strident, yet they have to be. They have to establish themselves in opposition to so many things Mm. and protect the insularity that there, there just is, it's, it's very calcified and it's, it's just very, it's not a very malleable time um, because you're just in a kind of a mode of defense and Riot Mm. Girls certainly um, was on the defense, um, a highly 
misunderstood um, movement, especially by mainstream media, who sort of immediately tried to kind of commodify it or kind of reduce it to something uh, sloganistic or very simplistic. And then, of course, it was a term applied to music, and it really didn't describe anything about the music. Mm -hmm. And the the bands that were um, sort of being attributed to Riot Girl sounded actually quite different from one another. So there was a lot of oversimplification that I think people were rejecting, um, and rightly so. However, I, I think that you know that kind of rigidity is very alienating, and I, I I think that it was sort of difficult at the time to be able to have questions about what was happening because it just felt like well, there's only one answer, and that answer it was like sort of tautological. It's like well, the answer is right, girl. It's like well, what is that? Well, we don't know. You know, it's just sort of a snake eating its own tail, and again, kind of out of self protection, but. Um, I think that's partly why Corn and I went as far away to Australia um, to form the band is um, because we weren't certain that we could actually do what we wanted to do and um, have a sense of ourselves or be expressive um, within the confines of um, a place, I think, that was really struggling to... um, really keep people out and we didn't we didn't really want to keep a lot of people out like we wanted to first of all have a sense of openness um towards process towards ambition towards goals um and we also wanted people yeah and we also we also wanted people to hear us you know and and it felt like um there was something a little bit about felt like we were a little bit in a padded room (laughs) in olympia where um you're only hearing your what other people sort of want you to hear. And we, we wanted to let everything in. So so we left, and then we came back uh, after we'd made our record. And an- another aspect of this um, is the, the old thing of being described as women musicians and a mm-hmm. female band. And you say this thing about, so in Slater Kinney, we sang a lot about a world that we wished we could access without the added explanation or justification. Uh-huh. And I, that really struck me that this is about saying I am a musician, not mm. I am a musician who happened, you know, does. Yeah, uh, that to me, I, I feel like, you know, when, um, when you put out a book or a film or a television show or anything, a piece of music, you, there, there it is at zero and you want to start the conversation here and go forward. And I, I just felt like a lot of those questions um, about how it felt um, to be a woman doing that, how it felt to be a woman playing guitar or a woman uh, in TV or a woman sitting in a chair. Um, <laughs> you know, it's just so much. It's like you spend all that energy. It's so yeah. arduous and you're at a deficit and you spend all your time getting to the, new, the place of neutrality and then you're, you're done talking about it. When really you just wanted to start at zero, and I think that um, that's very frustrating. And the critical response, when you talk about having a narrative imposed on you, that if you are a person, let me just see, you said, if you haven't spent time deliberately and intentionally shaping your narrative, if you're unprepared like I was, then one will be written for you. And if you already feel like a fractured self, you start to feel like a broken one. So... That wonderful innocence a band has, you know, it's like when you release a record or a book, if you've never done that before, you you haven't yet been described 
-hmm. And then you are described, and then you have all these epithets attached to you, mm -hmm. and these preconceptions set up, and you suddenly find you're sort of playing in front of a mirror in which there is an image of yourself that isn't one you've created, mm -hmm. that's been created for you. It doesn't sound as if you had much joy in the experience of, I mean, not in the playing, but of right. that that response. Yeah, I mean, as you describe, as you just eloquently described, I think that that mirror is a little bit of a funhouse mirror and you don't really, it's, there's this um, sort of disassociation where you don't necessarily recognize the image being projected back onto you, but at the same time you can't help but be curious about whether somebody is seeing a truth in you that you weren't able to recognize and then you're sort of grappling with this idea of um, external identity and in some ways it becomes like this sort of terrible existential or ontological crisis and you just sort of you don't know where to set out from because mm -hmm. I think when you start writing and you have no external expectations on you and it's just you and you in a room whether it's your band or your writing partners or whatever um, you everything feels possible um, and then uh, once once you're sort of uh, a, a version of yourself is reflected back at you that's kind of this compositive of um, other people's perceptions um, there is sort of a, a claustrophobia to that, mm -hmm. I think, and also, um, and it feels like limitations. Uh, and I, I think that can be very, very frightening. And uh, especially, you know, I, I see it happen, you can kind of see it writ large um, with social media that people kind of have to retract things all the time because they don't haven't had the um, a sense of, you know, like preparedness, I guess, for mm -hmm. what was going to be thrown at them. Um, it, it can be very disorienting, and I think you have to start tuning that out because it creates a, a real self-consciousness, I think. Um, mm. So for me, I really had to retreat um, back to a place of, I guess, insularity. And I think as a band, we tended to tune that out a little bit because it was, um, we, we kind of felt like, you know, the, the monikers or what it was sort of being thrown at us was not exactly apt and um but it also is empowering in that it's something to push against you know you always want something to push against and if you feel that it's it's not um a clear description or an apt description then it's just fuel for the fire i think and you were all you, you were working so hard i mean six albums in eight nine years something like that ten oh, gosh, years i don't know yeah probably but the, the, the recording yeah. the touring yeah, yeah. the writing cycle was pretty relentless yes and as you describe eventually you got to a point where your body was objecting mm -hmm. and you described touring as a frightening and jarring existence and i thought about what you said about how playing music gave you a form and it also gave you a family and I wondered if part of your eventual response to that was precisely because you'd got yourself a family in the form and that there was something in you resisting that being fixed in that and had to kind of push against that. That's very psychoanalytic. Sorry. <laughs> and very interesting. Just, Let yeah. me think about it. No, just tell me I'm nonsense. Just say nonsense. That's and we'll nonsense. Move on. <laughs> That's absolute nonsense. We can talk. Blimey. Um, I think that, um, no, I, I, I think that, that in, in some ways you're right, that um, I am fitful by nature and I think that um, once uh, something has a stability to it um, I have a natural um, inclination to undermine mm -hmm. but also 
there was something very fraught about Slater Kinney. I mean, for each of us, I think we each tried to um, have the band be a, a substitute for family in a certain way, because even though we each had our own versions of family outside the band, there is a, a certain faith you put um, upon the endeavor to kind of hold you, because mm -hmm. it, it's, uh, it's the thing that is carrying you away from, from those you love. Um, and when it becomes desperate or despairing, it can feel, you know, it's very un unsettling. And so I think that all of us um, were aware of the ways that it was, um, it was tenuous. And yeah, so I, th I think we all, we, I can't just say that I'm the only one that sort of, you know, was struggling against it. Mm. Because I think what the band symbolized for all of us was something that it um, almost had too much too much weight on it. I think that's mm -hmm. when when we came back the second time. Um, I think it was kind of in a better place of what it represented, you know. Yeah. Uh, especially for Corin and I. I mean, it was like so monolithic for both of us. You know, mm -hmm. it was something that we had sort of built up together, and um, you know, it was. I think it was very difficult because it kept having to be redefined and sort of redefined to the point where it felt a little bit flimsy after a while. And the structure of the book, you begin with the ending, well, the, the, the beginning of the hiatus, so the ending in 2005, but it ends with a beginning, uh -huh. and it ends with the beginning of the new phase uh -huh. and the wonderful new album uh -huh. and everything. Um, can you tell us a little bit about the coming back together and, and going back out on the road and making the new album? How, was it different? It, it was different. Uh... In a lot of ways, I mean, I think uh, for one, um, it felt there was felt a, a slight inevitability to the band getting back together. Uh, sometimes the band feels like a force that is sort of like orbiting around us, and we just sort of leapt uh, upon it, um, yeah, but we we couldn't yeah. help it. Um, and then, you know, I think that we all just have so many other facets to our lives now that there was just nothing about it that we took took for granted, to be honest. And um, it was also the most deliberate songwriting, you know, um, in terms of editing. We were so aware of what we had done before. We were so scared of putting out something that wouldn't kind of live up to um, our own expectations or ideas of what the band could be. Uh, the Woods had been um, an album that we all were very fond of and then, and then critically uh, had also done well. Um, which again, you you sort of keep on the periphery, but you're aware of it, mm -hmm. and uh, so we we just it was it was a hard album to write. We spent probably more time writing that album than we ever had, um, and then we loved touring with it, though some of our favorite songs to play live. And you know, it's considered one of your finest works, isn't it? In sort of general, yes, <laughs> it is. It is. It is. Yes, it is. Uh, yeah, <laughs> and just seeing seeing the the film of. The performance, say at the Roundhouse. I mean, it was very fun. Yeah, you're still all totally, um, you know, as you say, pushing back. Yeah, yeah. Although yeah. I felt, yes, I think we are, and I think that the, the the container of Slater Kinney is very unsuited for anything like too soft or demure. I think um, you mm. you kind of have to approach it uh, with a certain energy. Uh, otherwise, you're no match for for the band. Mm. Um, and uh, so I think I think that that was part of it. But I think so much of what was painful about Slater Kinney uh, the first time around, or not painful because actually there was so much joy, but hard for for me. And I think um, 
was that so much of it was just, it was like we just had a, a fist out and it was about mm -hmm. pushing away. Um, and I think what we realized with No Cities to Love and in, in this second iteration in terms of touring was that um, it's just as, as powerful and galvanic um, if this is out, but it's an open hand, you know, mm -hmm. and um, it's still something oh. to fall into. It's still something to give into, but there is just an openness and, and there is just as much power in, in vulnerability, you know, as, as there is in rejection, um, you know, and, and so that's, that's what we went for. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, I, we will now take your questions. Hi. Hi. Um, I'm from Spain, so my English may not be as good as yours. Definitely not, but... <laughs> totally fine. <laughs> I'll do my best. So when I had to um, choose what I wanted to study in university, I, I don't even think communication exists as a degree. I'm not sure. But it did, never came to my mind. And I'm always on the scientific kind of things and that's I work in scientific fields and uh -huh. stuff so nothing to do with that so I was wondering um, what did you know about well first of all what was the name of your degree like the specific oh sociolinguistics sociolinguistics okay so well um, <laughs> to the point <laughs> so what did you know about that uh, degree before choosing it or ah, how did okay. you know that you wanted to spend years studying that right <laughs> that's right yeah um well when i when i went to college uh i actually first well, before i transferred schools i was studying theater and drama and when i transferred schools um it was actually just um i think this is often the case when you when you meet somebody who inspires you and there was a professor um at evergreen state college named susan fixall who was um a sociolinguist and um her uh, specialty was uh, discourse analysis and I was very interested in um, the ways people communicate and um, language acquisition and computer mediated discourse which had kind of just started to become in vote and, and now of course is like a, a very like um, popular topic um, in, in terms of sociolinguistics and um, you often there's little columns and papers about the way we communicate online and whatnot but um, it really just took somebody else being passionate about something and and seeing um, just things kind of align like I was always an observer I was always somebody interested in, in the ways people communicated um, verbally and non-verbally I was very interested in orality versus literacy there was just there were so many facets of it that I was drawn to um, but it, I think it often does take a teacher. People often cite a specific person as kind of ushering them into a, a world, uh, whether it's academia or, or not, because, you know, passion is infectious. And I think it allows you to see into a field that might seem esoteric in a way that seems really, really relatable um, and applicable. I mean, I think that's the other thing, you know, like to, to see it as something you can apply to your life, which I feel like I have done, even though I haven't continued on in academia, I feel like it's informed a lot of what I do. So this is kind of random, um, but I'm studying abroad right now and I'm doing a lot of traveling. Um, so I was just kind of wondering what has been your favorite place that you've traveled to? Okay. Pontins. <laughs> Pontins, for sure, yeah. Um, let's see. Well, I've been all over the United States, um, which is a very vast uh, country. Uh, I love New Zealand, actually, um, quite a bit. Uh, it, 
breaks my heart to say this, but I uh, right now, but I really love Paris. It's a wonderful city, and uh, it's always magical there. Um, I love uh, Tokyo. Um, I don't know. I feel very fortunate to have traveled many, many places, and uh, but often what interests me are like the towns you pass through. To be honest, like I just I one of the most fortunate. Uh, I guess things about getting to drive places, which is also like terrible on your back and really hard on your body, is that you stop in in the other places. Uh, you stop in the places that aren't um, known for their tourism or their, you know, uh, their scenery, and uh, you have interactions at a, at a strange little restaurant or diner. Or you, um, I don't know. That regionalism is something I'm really um, curious about. So yeah, I. Just you know, drive like sixty miles outside of a, out of a city and, and see who lives there. I, I think that's uh, those are some of the most interesting places. Um, I saw on Instagram that you were reading Maggie Nelson's The Argonauts, mm-hmm. um, which I just finished reading. Well, actually, I put her book down to start yours and then went back to it. <laughs> All right. But um, I found some parallels. I didn't know that your mother suffered from uh, anorexia, and I didn't know that Maggie Nelson's mother suffered from some form of disordered eating. Um, and in the book, which is obviously a lot about motherhood um, and writing, she quotes Baths as saying that... Um, a writer must play with his mother's body. And I was wondering if it was hard, you know, what your experience was in writing about your experience of your mother's anorexia in the book. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess in, from an actual just writerly perspective, it was um, not any more difficult than the other parts of the book. You would be sort of surprised. Um, I think what kind of plagues you as a writer is not necessarily subject matter, but how to tell it. And sometimes um, things like touring or writing about an album um, was just as confounding to me as, as writing about something that I think the reader perceives as more sensitive. It was, uh, yeah, I, I mean, I knew that I was going to write ab- about that and I wanted to, since it's so much a story about embodiment versus disembodiment, uh, I thought it was important um, to include that because it had so much to do about uh, with um, how sort of my early ideas of one's relationship to their own self, their own personhood was, was formed and kind of distorted in some ways. Um, although I think in, in, in that distortion um, and, and abstraction and the observation of that pain that I witnessed a lot of people thinking was, I, I think, a, a compassion. So, um, yeah, it was... I guess from, yeah, that's the easiest way I can answer it, is that it wasn't any more difficult than any other part of the book, but I, I really knew that I wanted to include it thematically. You uh, spoke earlier about the riot girl scene and how, like, the rigidity of it, and with coming back, like, ten years after the woods with no cities to love, um, do you think the riot girl scenes, like, changed in any way over the years? Yeah, I mean, I think that um, sort of the the second or third kind of iteration of it or the way that people are kind of claiming that um, that term now or that identity now I think has a sophistication that early movements just are sort of unable to grasp. I think there's an intersectionality to it um, that speaks to sort of broader issues than, than just like, um, you know, white feminism or punk rock feminism. Um, I think there's just, yeah, there's a multiplicity to it, I think, um, and a, an, an energy and an openness to it and a, and a, a 
levity to it that I think is very awesome and I think makes it even more relatable um, and more uh, generous, I think, than um, it was able to be early on. Uh, so yeah, it's kind of exciting this, to see the ways that it's permeated um, pop and underground culture now. Um, there's some really great uh, versions of it out there. I just wondered whether there's any reason behind the book, what pushed you to write the book? Because you said it's a very difficult experience to go through, and that's really agree. And is there any reason why? And is there any message that you would like to convey for the book in particular? Uh, I mean, I think it's hard to set out with like sort of a like didactic message, like this is what I want people to get. There's a book, asks, I think, asks more questions than it does um, present definitive answers. I wanted to write about the process of creativity as a means of finding a sense of self and belonging and. Um, I wanted to write about that, uh, those early experiences in music and performing, yeah, as, as just a, a way into um, learning about the world and finding community. I also just, I do like writing, and it's the, the kind of the common thread. I mean, as difficult as writing, like as a long-form book is, I, writing something I've always done, and this felt like a good place to start, um, even though I've been... I guess writing for Portlandia and Slater Kinney and doing other kind of screenwriting for a, a while, I, um, yeah, I wanted to start with this. I was in, really inspired by Steve Martin's um, Born Standing Up, which is just a similar kind of story of his kind of early years, um, you know, growing up, working at Disneyland, clowning, um, doing stand-up, sort of everything behind the scenes until he sort of comes on the stage in Saturday Night Live, and I liked that as sort of this, like, guide to growing up and what, you know, the ways that, um, that art and creativity can, can change you and, and magnify you and help you. And so, yeah, that's why I wanted to write it. And I thought, this is a subject I know pretty well, and then it will help me, <laughs> help me write other things in the future, which, uh, you know, which I want to do. Do you want to answer my question? Yeah. <laughs> Uh, first of all, just thanks for putting me on the guest list for tonight. That was really nice of you. You really didn't have to do that. Oh, you're very welcome. That's, that's you, Oliver. Sorry? Wait, what's your name? Oliver. Yeah, yeah. that's what I just said. Oliver. <laughs> Best friends. I just I only recognize Oliver through through social media. Because he, so Yeah, so I had to try and look as much like my, my profile like picture. Avatar. I try to look like my avatar too. Yeah, <laughs> just so like you recognize me. Yeah. Yeah. Right, well. Nice to meet you. If in some alternate universe, uh Slater Kinney had to go through like a radical genre change, <laughs> which one would you choose to change to like you had to completely change right. your sound like, like which one would you identify most with okay i like these kinds of questions um, <laughs> gosh i mean it would be awesome to think that we could just like be a really good um maybe i mean heavy metal maybe seems too close to what we do um but you know and i just can't i mean hip-hop seems really like a stretch <laughs> Um, just based on my own rapping skills, I'm, I don't want to throw. I don't want to throw corn under the bus. I'm sure, I'm sure Sue's amazing. Yeah, let me just think disco. disco. I think disco would be good. Maybe maybe like country and western. Yeah. I think like a really good country album. I think corn could kind of pull that off. And then um, psycho Billy. Yeah, psycho Billy. But this is like micro <laughs> micro genre over here. Yeah, we would be a psycho Billy band. Yeah. So then watch out for our next record. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Oh, hi. hi. I just saying you wanted to do more writing. I just wanted to ask what like hopes do you have creatively? Like what work would you like to do over the next coming 10 years? Any dream projects? <laughs> What's your 10-year plan? My 10-year plan is just <laughs> sleeping through it, <laughs> resting. Um, you know, it's really hard when people ask questions like that because I think that we always feel like we've got to just give these answers. Like, well, I'm going to build a house and I'm going to learn how to do farming and permaculture <laughs> and then I'm going to run for office. And, um, but, you know, I feel really good where I am right now. I, I'm working on a, a handful of things that are, I mean a lot to me. Uh, Slater Kinney, Portlandia, Transparent, this book. I'd like to continue writing. I'm, I'd like to make more television shows. Um, not even necessarily for myself to be in, but I, I love producing. Um, I love writing. And... Uh, that's really important to me. But a lot of my goals, I think, um, when I think like 10 years, have to do with um, happiness and other, and people, other people's uh, happiness and well-being. So that all kind of combines together. Um, but yeah, I feel pretty good. But thanks. I'll work on it. I'll keep working. <laughs> when I get back to the hotel tonight, I will start writing something immediately. <laughs> I think, because um, you mentioned your sociolinguistics, and I think with Sleet, uh, sorry, with uh, Portlandia, it's kind of, um, I think that's riddled within it. Um, and I really enjoy it. But I just wanted to know whether you consider yourself a comedian or funny. <laughs> <laughs> In a more kind of, obviously Fred Armisen is an SNL kind of <clears throat> yes, he is, genius. but He is a funny one. Do you um, consider yourself a... No, you know, that's a, good, that's a good question. Actually, um, in some ways, I don't feel like my currency in life is, is humor. Uh, I think I am uh, a keen observer. I think I have wit. Um, but I think there are people, although you would be surprised, many of the funniest people uh, that we all watch on TV and movies are not actually very funny in person. <laughs> um, and, that, and that's true. And then some people kind of use that as, as um, like I said, the, the currency um, with, that they use in, in, their, in their daily interactions. Um, I don't think that that is my own currency. But um, I think that uh, there, you know, that I can be sometimes a little bit <laughs> funny, you know, but um, not always. Uh, and yeah, so, and Fred actually is not always doing bits either, by the way, but he is very, he is very funny. And I think that's, I think he would put that as like his, the first thing he called himself. No, actually he'd say drummer. He wants, <laughs> he wants to be known as a drummer, just FYI, do not call him a comedian. So I hope that answered your question. I think there's time for one more question. Okay, make it good. Yeah. This is how we're going out. <laughs> No pressure. This is my last meeting in the UK. Up to you. <laughs> wow. I'm just kidding. Good ask her what her ask, favorite ask color is, so please. Yeah, my favorite color. It can be anything. You can ask no, any question. got it. That was it. Um, no, I was going to say, in Portlandia, you talk, you have so many different personas. Uh -huh. You like, you wear different wigs and you dress up as different characters and it, it's, it's great. How do you, do you watch people in the street and think, they'd make a good sketch or but how do you come up with these characters is it you and Fred together or how is that process kind of 
Um, a lot of it, and I think, I think one of the reasons that the show is uh, kind-hearted as opposed to mean-spirited is because so many of the characters are permutations of who we are. Uh, it's just that, like if, um, like Nance, if Peter and Nance, you know, such a, <laughs> such a cloying, syrupy couple, it's as, as if I just, you know, walked through a, a room without any bones in my body, um, <laughs> that would be Nance. Uh, and, you know, I, I'm very obsessed with the ways people perform personhood and perform couplehood, especially couplehood. Like, I love when people, like, sort of display their, like, relationships in this, in this way. And, like, Peter and Nance, you know, when you see couples just melting into each other, or, like, when I've done that with someone I'm dating, I'm like, oh, my God, what if I did this all the time? And I had, like, no boundary between me and this other person. Like, just... You know, we, we think about those, those things a lot. And so often it's, it's us or our parents. So many of the couples are my parents' friends <laughs> from Seattle. There's so many Seattle couples. And, um, and I know they're, they're universal because people relate to them. But um, my friends from Seattle are like, oh, they, know those, they know these people. Um, Kath is like my most angry self. Like Kath, Kath to me is like Slater Kinney. Like if, if I didn't have a band, I would, I would be Kath. I would be cast 24-7, <laughs> which means I would have zero friends. And, um, so yeah, so most of the time it's just, it's just I'll, I'll observe something in someone else or I'll feel myself doing something. Like I remember um, there's this, uh, do you guys have this yogurt called wallaby yogurt? Okay, it's, it's like a, it has a kangaroo on it, as you can imagine, or a wallaby, sorry. Um, and I was at a grocery store. And I had actually just gotten back from Australia. And um, for some reason, I was buying wallaby yogurt. And I, I told the cashier, for no reason whatsoever, yeah, I just got back from Australia. <laughs> and then I just thought, what kind of person does that? Like, what is that, what is that part of me that wanted to overshare? And people overshare all the time. You know, I, like, I go to the bank and I let the bank teller know that I was just at the dentist. Why? I don't, you know, and, but I'm so curious about um, why people do things. And I try to think, like, how can I make that little small thing a whole person? Like, what if I start from there? And um, so, yeah, so it's, it's not, you know, sort of pointing someone out and being like, ha, that's funny. Look at that weird person. It's more like, look at all these weird parts of myself. Um, so, yeah, that's usually where it starts. Please join me in thanking Carrie Brownstein very much for what's been a really wonderful evening. Yes, yeah, sorry. Yeah. And thanks to Lavinia Greenwald oh, and to everybody here. For thank, thank you so all very much. much. Thanks for listening. To find out more about London Review Bookshop events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events.